I think it's really important to start almost all of your processes as a startup entrepreneur with the end game in mind. Are you planning on a 10-year company? Are you planning on just developing a product that gets sold in two years? Those inform the decisions in the early days. And that's, again, why I would recommend that they have a financial leader, even as a mentor in their background, so that they can make some decisions early days that can save them a lot of money in the long run. Hi, I'm Danny. And I'm Nicole. Welcome to the Spend Culture Stories podcast, where we explore the connection between company spending and culture. Join us as we dive deep into understanding the people, processes, and tools that make up spend as a whole, or what we call spend culture. Hi there, and welcome to another episode of Spend Culture Stories. This is Danny, and I'm here today with Suzanne Shiflett, the Chief Financial Officer of Gym Launch Secrets a consulting agency that helps gym owners convert their gym model into a profitability machine. Having worked as a seasoned CFO and remote CFO for over 10 years, Suzanne has a unique blend of skills with an experience that ranges from venture-backed startups to Fortune 500 companies. She does not hesitate to dig into the most difficult strategic challenges within an organization with an eye towards eliminating efficiencies and barriers to financial stability within an organization. She's passionate about moving nimbly from vision to execution and creating a positive, ethical, and high-energy environment and culture that sustains higher success for an entire organization. Welcome, Suzanne. Hey, thanks. Thanks for having me. I was really happy to already chat with you prior to uh, this main interview. I think your background is super interesting because you mentioned that you've worked as a CFO for hire and remote CFO for many years. And I think that model is definitely something that's becoming uh, more and more popular for a lot of finance leaders. Um, So I'm curious, what is it like being a a virtual or remote CFO? So I really feel like it's not a whole lot different than being a brick and mortar CFO. One of the things that is a differentiator is that you have to have really deliberate communications with your teams, a regular cadence to have one-on-ones, make sure that everything that you need from your staff is getting communicated in a very precise way so that when you have the outcomes, they come back to you in in the way that you were expecting. So just being clear about expectations. One of the things that we do here is just focus that the work product is outcome-based as opposed to when you are able to go meet with someone face-to-face, you're able to kind of see that they're working hard and all of that. When you're in a virtual environment, you're really having to depend on what is getting produced, either you know your monthly financials, your audit, all of those kinds of things are more outcome-based as opposed to just walking over and having that quick touch base on a, you know, even, you know, several times throughout the day. You're more apt to just connect a couple of times throughout the day, either over Zoom or chat, or even a day or so could go by, but you have to know that those projects are in in play. And so communicating at the beginning what your expectations are are really important. And then having regular one-on-ones, team meetings, what we do in our team meeting that kind of helps with making it a little less like a virtual team is we do things like play little games and stuff to get to know each other. That's awesome. I really like the way that you mentioned um, to be a little bit more outcome based. I feel like that's something a lot of uh, companies that have actual offices do really poorly is when you you have meetings for the sake of almost meetings and you mentioned the walking over the desk and asking for something. I get that so much and I get so distracted because that kind of takes me away from my job. But I feel like um, approaching a meeting where it's like 
this is the outcome of what I'm looking for. And this is what are deliverables. It makes it so much more clear. Yeah, it really does. And having that regular cadence around expectations too is important as well. So I'm curious, going back to the communication piece, how do you communicate the spend culture of Gym Launch Secrets to your team since it's such a unique remote model? Well, I think that's pretty easy, actually. We just have a lot of structure in place that's not really in the brick and mortar environment as a startup. So we have standard SOPs already in place and having good controls are also key. We have a communication around, you know, what each individual is allowed to spend, you know, and submit on a expense report and what is not. Then we've also instituted an automated approval process through our systems. We use bill.com and Expensify or Nexonia, excuse me. I've used Expensify in the past, but just where it has that automated approval change in command. But as you know, if you don't have communication at the outset, a lot of employees will go ahead and spend money and then expect to be reimbursed for it. So it's really important to have the clear guidelines up front. So I think that coupled with, you know, departmental budgets that they've participated in are key to making sure that everyone knows what is expected of them. Here at Gym Launch, we have real A players that are leaders within their business units, and they're excited to be owners of their own budget, owners of their own profitability. Some of them are first-time business unit leaders, and they are enjoying getting educated around the budget and looking at the items that they know they can control. So when we were training them on that, you know, I took them through a financial statement, I took them through the budget, and I said, uh, this is something you can control, this is probably something you can't control. And they were really excited about knowing that they could control that. And I I think that coupled with standard operating procedures for frontline level people are really how to um, make the spend culture work. I really like the way where you said uh, budget owners. I think that's a really great way to make the company more agile and giving that responsibility back to the employees. We actually have this uh, spend culture quiz if anyone in the audience wants to take it where you can kind of explore your company's spend culture and what it's that that's like compared to other companies within your field. So Suzanne, as a company kind of grows past the startup phase, what have you seen with the the challenges when it comes to managing spend? You know, if you set those things out early, you really don't have as much of a problem managing spend. It actually should be the same environment in a small company as it is in a scalable organization. What you do is you just make sure that the people that own that budget are communicating those procedures down and are really being active in approving the spending along the way. So, you know, if they get an expense report that's outside of procedure, that they're really diving in on that and educating the employee or the individual as to why that's not allowed and, you know, what that ramification means for the business. Thank you for your point, Suzanne. And um, how do you ensure those controls scale along with the company as you add more and more headcount? Because when I talk to a lot of uh, the CFOs that work in earlier stage companies, they might be using something like Excel or paper, but um, as they grow, that no longer becomes scalable. Yeah, I agree. I really encourage my startup companies, whether you know I was on a consulting basis or a full-time basis, to institute a approval management system early. So like an Expensify or Bill.com that has a system behind it to have the layered approval process in there. We also encourage putting in all of the backup documents and everything right in that system. So the the approver will have access to source documents as they're approving. And then again, like as long as you have laid out 
the clear guidelines on what is appropriate expenditures, having that system behind it, that scales as long as, you know, you keep that communication line going as what as to what expectations are. When do you think is the right time for a company to implement something like that? When is it too early or too late? I actually don't think it's ever too early. There's a lot of system out there that price based on user and it flexes up and down based on your usage. So if you have two expense reports or 10, there's systems out there that flex on that or they flex on user and they're very inexpensive. So you might be investing like $6 a month per either expense report or user and it saves money in the long run because there is that visibility. So not only does the the approval chain have the visibility, but also your upper level management team can have that same visibility all the way up to the CFO. You know, I'm not going to have to go dig through paper and expenses to see things. I actually have it right in there and can monitor and make sure that, you know, travel expenses are within guidelines, those kinds of things. It just helps everyone in that approval process and the finance team have the controls that they need. And it's very minimal. I would say that they pay for themselves. I can imagine that kind of model also works well with the remote process when it comes to uh, remote employees wanting to buy the things that they need quicker. Yeah, exactly. And that, again, having the guidelines in place at the outset is what is really important. So maybe let can uh, we can talk about the first time audit. So I know that's something that's very difficult and scary for a lot of um, early stage companies. How could you prepare for an audit properly so that you're not kind of scrambling last minute to make sure that you're getting all the things you need for an auditor? Well, again, I think that having a financial leader early in the game is really important. So I actually encourage startup CEOs or, or people that are thinking about a startup, even, you know, young entrepreneurs to get advice from a CFO early. And what you do is you set up the proper accounting systems, even if there's like an office manager or something that's doing the accounting for you, you have the systems to be already gap compliant. You're not having to do a big conversion from cash accounting to gap accounting later. A really good office manager that's paying the bills within an accounting system like QuickBooks, even in the earlier stages, is has the ability to keep gap books with just a little bit of guidance from a you know, a financial leader. So that's where like an on-demand executive comes into place where they can set up and, and train the person about how to code expenses and things like that. So I've trained, you know, an office manager to actually close books, record depreciation, get in our merchant settlement account and record revenue and things like that. But having that early is so key to the audit because you can train that same person to do a minimum of reconciliations. And then as you scale, and actually have an accounting team, they're not having to go back and clean up. So having systems in place early with even an office manager or an untrained accountant is super important. And keeping things in one place is really a key to getting audit ready. One of the things as I came into gym launch, records and, and stuff wasn't organized quite the way that a typical accountant would. So we did it a little bit of a cleanup to get audit ready. They had a lot of it in place, but just getting it ready for the audit, you know, in a what I call a functional format. So kind of following your balance sheet, things like your reconciliations and balance sheet order just makes the audit go much more smoothly. So one of the things that I do is I actually say, you know, audit ready all the time where the audit becomes not an event. If you're doing your reconciliations on a monthly basis, you would have all of that in that file 
format structure. And I also do, as you know, we have to do schedules on revenue and cost of goods sold and that. We do that on a monthly basis as well. So I call the above the line proofs, above the gross margin line of proofs are done on a monthly basis. There's also some great tools out there. One that we use is called Flowcast. We've used that in the past. And so those things are repositories that actually tie into your general ledger and can make sure that your reconciliations are tying out. And if there's a change on the general ledger, they actually alert you so that when the auditors come, you actually can just give them a view only access and they can just dig in there and much audit on their own. So many great pieces of advice in that, I guess, few paragraphs that you said. So thank you for that. I think um, one thing we've definitely seen is um, like an office manager role eventually growing into like a junior accountant or growing into a purchaser when a company becomes more large. So that's actually something that's really great to see where you're suggesting that companies bring in a finance leader to kind of train them early on so that they can actually grow into that career path. Yeah, they seem to either head down the path of HR or accounting, one of the two, depending on the type of personality that that person is, especially in these early stage startups. But they usually have the acumen if they're an office manager to you know, handle rudimentary accounting. So it's important if they just have just a little bit of guidance, they can be a real asset to you even in the early days. So I'm curious when it comes to kind of like a CFO or a strategic finance leader role, Do you think it's ever too early? Just because I've talked to a few people and they've mentioned that sometimes if you bring in like a CFO role too early, that there is not enough of strategic initiatives for them to really do. Would you disagree or agree with that? I would agree on a full-time basis. I do feel like it's important to have finance at the table while you're discussing early day strategy so that you're doing things from a compliant legal perspective. So Any good early stage CFO has enough legal acumen to guide you from a legal standpoint and probably save you quite a bit in legal fees as well. So while you maybe don't need one full time, I would definitely have some sort of in the background on demand type CFO early stages. I've advised people before they start, like, let me talk through your business, your outcome desires, where you're going to get funding, those kinds of things early on. And then we can even decide things like how you want to structure your business, how to approach financing or getting your first even angel investors, where to go. Things like that can be vital. And again, the CFO on an on-demand basis can almost pay for themselves. I love when you say um, can pay for themselves because I think a lot of people always get scared of kind of like the upfront costs. They're not thinking of like the long-term benefits that like a system or um, a finance leader can really bring to the company until maybe a year or a year after. Oh, I agree. But again, a full-time CFO at the level that someone that could do an on-demand role is going to be pretty pricey. And As you know, a lot of times with the accounting role, a lot of people get inflated titles. So a CFO could be someone that's very junior and doesn't have that expertise to be strategic. They're really like more of a controller or a FP&A person that has now graduated into a CFO role that really doesn't have that expertise. So it's almost better to get someone with a lot of expertise and allow an office manager to be their counterpart and then just use them on an hourly basis. And you can really save some money doing that. Yeah, that's a really, really good tip that I'm sure a lot of our listeners will really appreciate hearing. So you mentioned uh, getting ready for a raise or another round of funding. So how comparable are the processes when it comes to preparing for a raise? Can you walk through what is usually needed for that? 
Certainly. Again, I feel like when you have the that audit readiness is just a huge building block for a fundraise. So if you're audit ready, you have a lot of things in place. Things like your corporate documents, because when they start the audit ready file, they're going to audit readiness file. They're going to want all your articles of incorporation, things like that. Well, so will a VC when you actually go through the diligent process. So auditors usually look at some of your commercial contracts. They look at, you know, your books, obviously. One of the things that the VCs will dive into a lot more than the auditors will be your customers. You'll want to do customer references, reference checks, and they'll probably look at more of your customer data. If you're in SaaS, they'll look at churn and and things like that. But they really want to make sure that you have referenceable customers. So uh, get your audit ready, you know, to be audit ready, and then formulate your pitch deck, and then include your customer data in there, line up some good customer references. And then if you're in the visionary stage, you know, make sure that your visionary story actually aligns with the financial data that you have already put in place. Make sure it aligns with your customer messaging that they'll get when they they do their referencing. (laughs) Make sure that the management team really understands that story and can communicate as, as concisely as you can as a CEO, the vision, the customer journey, you know, that the financial historical numbers really make sense and that any projections really make sense with where you're going. So I think if you have all of that ready, you're ready to access the financial market. What do you think are some of the biggest mistakes that um, startups face when they want to scale past that startup phase? Because you mentioned that obviously um, having the right messaging, having the right product is essential and also having the right team. But there's so many startups that don't make it past kind of like this growth phase. And what do you think are some of the biggest reasons why? Honestly, I think it's usually product market fit is why people don't make it past the growth stage. You can get friends and family to fund you. You can get a few customers to, especially early adopters to, you know, believe in your vision, but really having a consistent product that's solving a solution in the marketplace that's easy to use. That's where I think the scale factor comes in. I've had a lot of successful clients in the past 10, 15 year clients that are still in the sub 20 million range. And that's, they've got a good product, but they're never going to scale because their product's not easy to use or they don't have streamlined processes in the background. So, you know, it's kind of that trifecta of having a really good product, product market fit, easy to use, good processes in the background, preparing to scale. And that's how you get ready. But a lot of them just stall out right at that, you know, 20 million mark because it really is hard to take it to the next level. You can get a few really loyal clients that can support you at the 20 million range, but to scale past that, it's a new ball game. Yes, absolutely. Being a startup ourselves, we can definitely feel that um, from an emotional level. Have you read the book uh, Crossing the Chasm, Suzanne? Yeah, I read it quite a while ago. I can't remember all the tenets, but yeah, there's a lot of cool things in there that that are really helpful. I actually read quite a bit and get a few nuggets from each book and try, you know, how some are going to hit home a little bit more than others. But I think constantly reading and refreshing also helps, especially young entrepreneurs to read and take some of the lessons learned from some of the people that have scaled. Yes, definitely. I think what I really like about the book is that it talks about what are some of the different stages of uh, product adoption within a growth stage company? And um, what are the things that you need to think about when it comes to sales and marketing? Because I think a lot of times when 
product visionaries, they're thinking of the product in itself. It's about how do we build it, but not about how do we sell it and how is this financially viable? So I think that's definitely something that kind of resonates with what you're saying too, the product market fit and understanding that whether it fits within the market and the financial model. Yeah. And whether the customer can use it, because sometimes you have a great product, but it's still kind of the UI or whatever hasn't been ironed out. So it makes it kind of difficult. And that's where you'll get early adopters will, you know, consistently use it even with those pain points. But to really scale, it has to be easy. It has to be just, you know, almost idiot proof as it goes forward. Yes, definitely. And taking that feedback from the customers, what they're saying about making it better for everyone. Most definitely. So I'm curious also, um, burn rate is something that's kind of like a, almost like the elephant in the room for a lot of startups where they understand it's important, but for the sake of growing, sometimes they would have to spend a lot of money in order to kind of make a better product or build a better team. So how can you balance that financial control with the burn rate along with agility? That is really a great question, to be honest with you. I feel like that also can really impact some of the smaller startups. They just are growing, you know, past what is reasonable for their product or their their market, you know, their TAM, if you will. They're looking at things and, and maybe they have quite a bit of funding in the background and access to deep pockets, but they're really not being prudent as they grow their organization with that cash spend in mind. And when you see that, it's it's kind of unfortunate. I've seen people go through, you know, millions and millions of dollars of fundraiser fund, you know, um, investor money with really nothing to show for it. And it's it's sad to me and it's hard to support that as a CFO. So I usually try to back out of those organizations as soon as possible, just because I feel like as a CFO, when those kinds of things are going on, those investors are really looking to you as a financial leader to be kind of the gatekeeper, almost in between, sitting in between the company and the investors themselves as a watchdog over the the investments. And so when that kind of spending is occurring, it's really hard as a CFO if you can't really get behind what's going on. So if you're making prudent decisions like adding sales leadership or, you know, making a change like that, that makes sense, you know, and it makes sense. You can look at your cash flow and justify it, your cash flow spend. But once you're seeing some of the younger entrepreneurs and they're, they're maybe build a brand or things that aren't really adding to the value of the product itself, it's harder to support that. So it's really important to have that balance of like how to grow, what is appropriate cash spend for your investor base, your product vision, you know, balancing that. And that's where it takes a real strong strategist from a financial perspective to understand that. And again, I roll back to some of those earlier stage CFOs, they haven't seen a lot of that. And so they might have a tendency to just kind of, you know, nod their head when the CEO is saying we got to have it and really not looking strategically at the value of that to the business and how that also in turn meets the needs of the constituents, the employees, the business itself, and the investors. I love what you said about nodding their heads and saying, yeah, like that sounds like it makes sense. Um, sometimes when I go visit the San Francisco area, I hear a lot of funny uh, stories with where it comes to company spending. I wonder if you've heard some of these before. <laughs> yeah, we've all heard of the you know Blue Apron and some of those that have spent billions of investor dollars and look where we are now, that they're virtually worthless in some cases, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes like they spend on crazy things like crazy parties or stand up desks that kind of also 
uh, double as treadmills. I'm not sure if you've seen that one. It's pretty funny. <laughs> yeah, sometimes there's a good reason for some of that. And sometimes there's not. And so what I really try to do is analyze, you know, as the CEOs come in and they have a suggestion around another big spend, does that really add to the top line? Does that help us from, you know, reduce costs in the bottom line? I don't want to squelch growth, but we also want to use the dollars wisely towards things that will add to the business. So I'd much rather see, you know, an extra salesperson or an extra engineer, both of those either adding to the product or adding to the sales pipeline than a stand-up desk or a party or things like that. And maybe I'm a Scrooge, but um, at the end of the day, you have to watch every dollar because every dollar is, I think every dollar came in from outside, right? Typically in those earlier stages, once you're cash flowing and things like that, and you're not spending investors money, you know, it's, I like to think I want to spend that money like it's my own. And, you know, I want to make sure that we're getting each value for each dollar that they put in. What do you think are some of the um, questions to kind of ask the team before they decide to spend um, on a particular piece of item? Well, I, I really do try to ask them, like, what do you think this does for the company? Does it increase morale? That would be your stand-up desk. Or is it really necessary? Or is there other ways to enforce culture within your own team, right? If those kinds of things are minimal. At the outset, they'd much rather have you growing them as a leader, interacting with them as a team, than a stand-up desk. The stand-up desk, a raise, you know, some of those monetary things are very short-lived in their motivational factor. So it's important that their needs are met and they have the tools and things in place that they need. So that's where I look. And then, again, anything beyond meeting the needs of the employee themselves starting to look at what adds either to the, the revenue top line or your product roadmap. Yeah, I think that's a really great way to put it, just framing, um, understanding why you need something and then whether that actually contributes. Exactly. So I'm curious, Suzanne, you mentioned your toolkit a little bit earlier on in our conversation about some of the systems that you use. As the organization grows, what do you think are some systems that you might want to upgrade or some tools that you will start to have to introduce as the company grows? What I really try to do, again, is in those earlier days when you're meeting with the entrepreneur or, you know, early stage startup, what is your ultimate plan? Do you want to grow this to be a huge organization? Are you really trying to more grow it to a product that someone else is going to buy? So if you're really trying to grow this for a sale, do you want to put a lot of infrastructure and tools in place because you're going to be purchased and those are going to be integrated into someone else's solution. So knowing that at the outset really informs the decisions that you make. But earlier in the startup phase, there's some great tools, again, that have flexible, no commitment type contracts that you can get in place. And then as you grow, you can reevaluate things and see if you want to go to that next level. So QuickBooks is a good one, right? And then having some sort of expense system, approval process system, having a CRM that grows with you. Just a lot of those are your almost have to haves. And then as you as you grow, you'll want to layer on more things like the Flowcast that helps you with your reconciliations. As you take on equity, I would say from dollar one, if you're going to have either options, an option program for your employees and or equity, you should invest in a system like Cardit. 
all CFOs know that that managing that cap table, managing that option spreadsheet is fraught with errors. So getting some of those tools in early from day one are really important. And they're not that expensive, really. You can probably spend $1,500 or something on a car to program it in the early days, but it'll save you tons in legal fees and again, almost pay for themselves. So those kinds of things are really important as base infrastructure. And then as you grow, you should look at, you know, what is our exit strategy for for this organization? Do we need to build to a bigger platform, you know, an intact and net suite? Or do we just need to kind of shore this to a sale? So at Gym Launch, I feel like we have a lot of really good systems in place. Our issue as we scale is actually getting them to talk to each other and integrating them so that we can get the right information out of them so that we can make really good business decisions. I think that is one of the areas that a lot of mid-stage startups start seeing is they've got a lot of really good tools, but they're tools that are standalone and maybe don't talk to each other. So I would say as you scale into that second mid-tier, that it's more about integrating the systems that you have. Absolutely. I've talked to a lot of leaders where they've found out throughout their journey that, oh, we need the system or, oh, we need the system, but they're not thinking about in the long term, what is the eventual goal of the company and how do these systems connect together? So we've definitely seen a lot of that. I think uh, what you said about starting it early and having like the must-haves in place is really, really important. Yeah, I think it's really important to start almost all of your processes as a startup entrepreneur with the end game in mind. Again, are you planning on a 10-year company? Are you planning on a just developing a product that gets sold in two years? Those inform the decisions in the early days. And that's, again, why I would recommend that they have a financial leader, even as a mentor in their background, so that they can make some decisions early days that can save them a lot of money in the long run. Absolutely. For example, when you mentioned the one of um, the tool on, on the options. I've never even heard of that before. So only when I've talked to you, I would have learned that. Well, there's a lot out there. There's Carta, there's Optionese, a lot of things. And again, those spreadsheets, when you have to go through an audit, almost every time have some, you know, because they're interlinked spreadsheets and things that you have to use to do a lot of the disclosures around those. It's really hard to get those 100% accurate. But if you use a system and a platform, you're really just entering the source documents, and then it takes care of all of that regulatory reporting in the background. And as you can with the Flowcast, that reconciliation tool, you can actually give your auditor or your legal counsel view-only access, and they can go in there and get whatever they need when they're trying to fulfill a request or do the audit. That's really awesome. That level of security is really great for a lot of companies out there. Well, um, Suzanne, I think uh, we are nearing the end of their interview. Um, so I really want to end it off with a pretty fun question that we do ask all guests. What is something surprising about you that other people may not know? That's always a tough one for me. I'm not that interesting, but oh, you are. <laughs> I would say one of the things that people don't realize, you know, when you're in the CFO seat, a lot of times people are really looking at you like you're just this diehard career woman from the outset. And one of the things that would probably surprise a lot of people is that I actually took several years off in the early days with my children. And then also I took them to work. <laughs> when they were a little bitty, I took them to work. And then 
you know, from like three to five, I took off with them. And then I kind of moved into a part-time role and then into a CFO role. So I feel like it's important for people to understand that you don't necessarily have to set aside your values as a mother or some of your personal value systems to be a true career person. So I think that would surprise people that I would say that. Did you take your kids to travel or just um, to work with you? Just to the office. And one of the companies that I had, they had their own little office slash playroom and they would play school or play. That was so cute. <laughs> it was so fun. And they have really good memories from that. All three girls went together and played together and, you know, kind of took care of themselves and rely on each other. And I think it actually also has made them closer as adults. That's really amazing that um, you were also able to work in a place where you were able to take your kids and let them grow up together like that. I feel like um, as a fellow female myself, I'm a little bit scared for later on in the career when I do decide to be a mother, whether you know, the company will support me in my endeavors, where if I come back as a mother, whether I will still be able to have those growth opportunities. Well, I think what's important is there is enough companies out there that will support you as a mother and as a valued professional that you just put your family first. And if the company is the right company for you, they will foster that professional growth and as you still value your family. So it's really important to have that balance and a company that values you. Absolutely. And I think um, the remote working model is becoming more and more popular. So maybe um, I'll join you as a remote worker in the future. (laughs) That'd be great. I think it's been really rewarding. You know, there are times where you miss that one-on-one interaction, but we've really used the online tools like Zoom and what have you. We have a kind of like a, a little chat thing where it's instant messenger. It's called Click. So we use those tools to be in connection with each other. But I also view it as my personal goal is to help women and other people, professionals in the workplace have that value of family while still being able to meet their pinnacle in their own personal career growth. I really love that. I think you're such an inspiration to a lot of um, mothers out there and a lot of girls that are going through their careers. Well, thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for this awesome conversation. Um, I definitely had a lot of fun and I learned a lot from you. I hope you had fun too. I did. It was wonderful. Thanks. Thanks for tuning in on another episode of Spend Culture Stories. If you like this series, please support us by leaving us a positive review on iTunes or Stitcher. And be sure to subscribe so you can get notified of the newest episodes. We try to post every episode every Wednesday. This podcast is sponsored by Procurify, a software solution that is reinventing the way organizations spend. Procurify allows an accessible and convenient way to request for purchases, get approval from your manager, while allowing your finance team to get the visibility and control you need on every purchase. Learn more about Procurify at www.procurify.com.